The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk as we close up here in chapter 3. In our day and age of access to 24-hour multimedia stimulation, it seems that there are few things that shock us anymore. Every form of bizarre behavior is on full display for the indiscerning. It seems that in our day we have lost a sense of awe and reverence, whether it's in Christian worship, a respect for tradition, or the values and virtues which make for a well-lived life. God's people are in constant need of renewal that only comes through a fresh encounter of the living God. If we would live quorum Deo, Before the face of God, that means that we would be the called out people, a holy nation, and a kingdom, a priest, before a watching world. As we come to our final chapter in the book of Habakkuk, we follow the prophet's example of coming into an encounter with our great and awesome God, that we might be a people of prayer, a praise and rejoicing to spread the Lord's glory on the earth. Please follow as I read Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from His hand, where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountain crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses in your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow and called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. And deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. 
You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, once again we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In March of 2003, American forces began their assault on the nation of Iraq, assaulting the Iraqis with an overwhelming show of force known as shock and awe. Television viewers back home may recall the missiles firing to take out the defenses of Saddam Hussein's armies to break down their communications, to cut them off from supply and reinforcements, and creating a situation by which there were massive surrenders from the royal forces of Iraq, and easily leading a pathway to the quick capture of the city of Baghdad. As impressive and as as awe-inspiring as this shock approach was in this modern warfare, It truly, the advantages of such an approach will be debatable for years to come. This nation could not withstand the unmatched power of American military might. And we'll recall that later that year, Saddam Hussein was captured. Nevertheless, our efforts since then to transform the nation of Iraq into a well-functioning, Western-like democracy has proven less successful. The capture and liberation efforts of the American military were long preceded by a much greater demonstration of power by the Lord with his people. The American military showed superiority and overwhelmed a small nation, but the Lord, using no military whatsoever, defeated the greatest empire in the ancient world, delivering his slave people from the house of bondage in Egypt. After a great display of shock and awe, plagues, crippling the might of the Egyptians, the Lord went on to show forth a great spectacle of wind and storm and lightning and smoke on Mount Sinai. It was there that 
Moses and the people trembled in fear as the Almighty approached them and spoke from the holy mountain. It was God's intention to get his people's attention, to set them apart as his own possession, to be a kingdom of priests, truly set apart to proclaim his glory on earth. We come to this prayer in chapter 3 of Habakkuk that references this great and significant event in the life and the history of Israel as a nation. This prayer longs to see more of God's shock and awe, thrusting judgment upon the wicked and bringing deliverance to those who trust in the Lord. Habakkuk's prayer would be answered, but not with the spectacle of Red Sea and Sinai wonders, but on a humble cross at Calvary. Like our forefathers, who cowered before the foot of Mount Sinai, we in our flesh flee with holy dread before the Lord. But also like our forefathers who approached the living God through a mediator, Moses, it is in Christ that we approach the Almighty with awe and wonder. Like the prophet Habakkuk, we may approach him now through a new and living way, prayerfully, in praise, and personally through Christ. Let us first consider how we may approach our great and awesome God in prayerful awe and wonder. Notice how Habakkuk's prayer is filled with awe and adoration. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. This opening statement is a chiasm couched with the word Lord on either end and twin thoughts of praise and awe in the center. The prophet who opened up his dramatic dialogue, telling God how to run his world, now stands back in wide-eyed amazement. The prophet doesn't have the answers to all of his perplexing questions. And yet he has gained a deeper appreciation for the wisdom of God's justice and the depths of his mercy. He had heard of God's great and awesome deeds as a small child growing up in the covenant community. But now as an adult, he renews his sense of awe and wonder at the greatness of God who has repeatedly come to deliver his people. His awe grows into adoration with these words. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Habakkuk seems less consumed with himself, having been transformed with a vision and now eager to see the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fill the earth as the waters indeed cover the sea. This prayer exudes with a passion to make great the name of the Lord on the earth that all people might shudder before him and seek refuge under the shadow of the Almighty. Ours is a culture fascinated with fame and human glory. In just a few weeks, hundreds of millions will likely tune in 
to watch the spectacle at Westminster Abbey, the wedding nuptials of Prince William and Kate Middleton. I understand that on a weekly basis, tens of millions tune in to watch wannabe stars compete on American Idol. It is a pity to observe people's obsessions with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the tragic love lives of movie stars. And as I observed this past week, the sad reality, the sad fallout of multi-millionaire NFL football players taking out massive and dangerous loans to cover their expenses as a consequence to the NFL owner's lockout. Pop culture in America ranges from the bizarre to the pathetic. It only serves to illustrate that there is one who is worthy of our awe and adoration. Jesus came into this world not with pomp, fanfare, but rather undignified commonness, born to peasant parents. He knew the flightiness of human popularity, refusing on one occasion to be made king by force, telling others, forbidding them to spread stories of his miraculous deeds. His was not the path to fame or ease. He rejected the tempter who sought to reroute the Savior towards the path of stardom. He understood that the cross would introduce an upside-down kingdom where the last will be first, where the humble will be exalted, where something weak and despised would become powerful and glorious. Friends, as we enter into this Holy Week, let us reflect on the glory of the cross, on the splendor and majesty of our Savior, His passion, His crown of thorns, His mocking robe of crimson, His body lacerated and pierced, bearing our burdens, His blood shed for you and I to pay an infinite debt that you and I might stand before God, and the riches of Christ's righteousness credited to our accounts forever. The prayerful prophet goes on to offer praise in the main body of our text in a form of poetry and song. Verses 5 through 15 offer a classic example of Hebrew poetry, emphasizing the Lord's passion for justice and his will to punish the wicked. The Lord's passion is reflected by repeated references to the words anger, wrath, and rage exhibited in verses 8 through 13. The prophet turns historian recounting the Lord's demonstration of power at the Nile, the Red Sea, and the Jordan River. In each case, Israel's God overthrew her enemies their pagan gods, their puppet deities, and their feeble rulers of men. The Lord here is displayed as a mighty warrior, unleashing his bows with great wrath. The language here conjures up in my mind images of the greatest of Greek heroes, Achilles, 
from Homer's Iliad, who scatters the men of Troy as they flee the wrath of Achilles, who seeks revenge for the death of his beloved Patroclus. But whereas Achilles was proven in the end to be mortal by the arrow of Paris, our Lord is truly invincible. And his wrath is not petty human rage, but an everlasting passion to come to the aid of his people. In verse 13, we see that the committed love of our God is like a bridegroom for his bride, coming to deliver her out of the clutches of the Egyptians, protecting her from marauding attacks in the wilderness and threshing the nations and plowing them like a field that his people might flourish in the land of Canaan. The passion of God to punish the wicked is seen here threefold for the praise of his own glory, for the vindication of his people, and yes, to bring justice on evildoers. Verses 5 and following offer up pairs, couplets of complementary thoughts. Plague and pestilence go before him in verse 5, shaking the earth, making the nations tremble in verse 6. But the Lord's exacting of punishment upon the wicked reaches a climax in verse 14, where the Lord is compared, as it were, to Benaiah, the great lion killer, the chief bodyguard of David who took the spear out of the hands of a large Egyptian and killed him with it. So the Lord is a mighty warrior who pierces the enemy with his own spear. Reference here is made to the scattering of Israel's enemies who resemble the Philistines fleeing Israel after Goliath's defeat. There are many in our secular society and a growing number of professing evangelicals who cannot stomach the justice of God to punish the wicked. Rob Bell, popular preacher and author in the emerging church movement, has recently published a book entitled Love Wins. The premise of this book is a kind of universalism by which unbelievers will all eventually succumb to the relentless pursuit and love of God, who will be given, even after death, almost infinite opportunities to respond to the gospel for all eternity. Now, I certainly do not take any issue with an emphasis on the unrelenting love of God. But Rob Bell and his followers fail to reckon with God's justice and holiness. They dismiss the clear biblical teaching that people have but one mortal life in this world to respond to the message of Christ before they will stand before God in judgment. That is the earnestness of our mission. We do nobody a favor downplaying God's wrath on sinners. The Bible is very clear, and no less in Jesus' own teaching, that hell is a place of eternal torment for those who fail to repent, who do not cry out to the king, 
for pardon, for pardoning grace. And that opportunity is in this life. There's an earnestness, my friends, to spread this message to people perishing. Yes, magnify the love and mercy of God. By all means, emphasize His goodness, His patience on sinners that they might turn away from their rebellion and claim His promises of grace that are acquired by faith alone in Christ, but never at the expense of overlooking God's justice or neglecting the clear warnings of the Bible on those who would insist on being their own saviors. Our message may be unpopular with the New York Times. We and our college students may not win many points with our university professors. Our message may reap for us a kind of mocking. We may sound narrow, judgmental, intolerant, and unloving before the blocked, stopped-up ears of those in a confused culture of darkness. But friends, this is the truth, the very foundation upon which we stand, the platform from which we communicate the message of salvation, the only way of escape for people perishing, urging them to flee the judgment to come, to find security and eternal rest for their souls in Christ alone. Well, having considered the prophet's prayerful and praiseworthy poetic approach to the living God, let us now turn to the final verses to consider his very personal and profound reaction to the Almighty. This Habakkuk who began these dialogues in a state of bewilderment ends with a heartened and hopeful spirit. In verse 16 and following, the prophet acknowledges his weakened physical state. Having just now had a very intense encounter with the Almighty, he is physically incapacitated. His heart pounded. His lips quivered. His feet and legs trembled. And yet, this physical setback appears to have awakened him spiritually, no longer despairing. The prophet now is waiting patiently, trusting that the Lord will bring calamity upon the unjust, this invading nation, in God's own timing. He professes his faith, not in himself, but in the Lord who is his strength. This is the God who makes his feet like the feet of the deer, enabling him to stand upon the heights. Those who trust in the Lord are heartened with a supernatural strength, enabling them to stand in difficult places. Those who abide in him are given a renewed vision to see life and circumstance with a divine perspective. Consequently, such people are a people of great hope, even when things appear to be falling apart all around them. In verses 17 through 18, Habakkuk expresses this great confidence 
even when life appears to be breaking down. He laments the failure of the produce and the livestock. The fig tree fails to bud. There are no grapes on the vine. The olive tree and the grain refuse to provide. The sheep and the cattle fail to multiply, suffering plague. But for the man whose heart is turned away from self and is centered on the Lord is a rejoicing heart, a heart that is joyful in God his Savior. Friends, can you and I say the same today? Can you honestly say, though the stock market crash right before retirement, though the American dollar would collapse as a reliable currency, though the American government would default on its massive debts, though Social Security and Medicare become insolvent, though my own child become afflicted with something that doctors cannot diagnose, though the church be rocked with strife and dissension, even still, I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God, my Savior. Just this week, I was updated by friends of ours in the church who are here tonight, telling me and the pastors about a college friend, married, about 30 years of age, three little children at home, who's been diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. Turns out it's inoperable. Even aggressive chemo and radiation treatments may grant him only two to three years, five at best. What do you do in that kind of situation? When your dreams come crashing down, when your hopes and securities are pulled out from under you, when all of those hopes come to a screeching halt before a seeming impenetrable wall, I pray for this man and our friends here in the church. I pray that the prayer of a packet might fill his heart, calm his wife's fears, provide a foundation upon which their children may stand, who will very likely grow up in this life without their earthly father. The shock of such a dire diagnosis can only be mitigated but by those who make the cross their shadow, their eternal abiding place. Only the shock and awe of our Lord crucified on a Roman instrument of torture can give us perspective in this world of pains and miseries, disappointments, and a life through the veil of tears. The powers of medical technology cannot transform our hope in the face of death. Our military might cannot change the hearts and lives of a nation. 
we also recognize that it took more than the shock and the awe of the Lord appearing at Sinai, giving the law to Moses and the people to transform their hearts. No, it took the cross of Christ. Only at the cross were God's people completely convinced that this God of justice and righteousness is a God who loves with an everlasting love, willing to pay the ultimate price to secure for us an eternal inheritance in a sinless world where we will behold the beauty and the glory of the Son for all eternity. Friends, as you and I enter this Holy Week, may we reflect and ask the Holy Spirit to renew us, renew in us a sense of shock and awe at what wondrous love is this that the Savior demonstrated for us so long ago at Calvary. Let us pray. Father, it is shocking and awe-inspiring to consider the extent to which you would go, not sparing your only Son, but freely offering him up for us to shield us from the coming wrath, to secure for us an eternal inheritance. Lord, may we enter this week humbled and yet rejoicing, prayerful and yet filled with joy at the great victory that our Savior has accomplished, defeating sin and death, and granting us eternal access into your presence. O Lord, fill us and renew us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.